This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host. Wait a minute. What's your name again? Who am I? Where am I? Oh yeah, it's Hank. Uh, welcome to Death by DVD. This is... I don't know what episode this is. It doesn't matter. We're going to keep this joke going the entire fucking show. But now into weekly scenes. <laughs> if only I could remember what week it is. Jesus, is this... Our, like, I'm just thinking about it now, that intro? Yeah, it's probably insensitive. Yeah. Probably pretty fucking insensitive for what we're talking about tonight. We can always restart, but we're not gonna. This is what we're gonna keep it with, if I could just remember. I, I'm not gonna stop now. You started a monster. <laughs> well, let's do recently scenes. Let's do recently scenes. Hank, you wanna go first? You want me to go first? What do you want? What do you want? I went first last week, so why don't you charm the people with your amazing voice this week? Uh, I will not charm anyone with anything because I watched a movie called Sea Fever that was on Hulu. <laughs> I, I found it in a dumpster behind my house and I just decided to watch it. Well, I had heard some positive things. It, it's making the rounds on the uh, the critics lists of like, this is a pretty good horror movie. So I watched it. I I don't know. It was incredibly mediocre. It was filmed okay. It had some, a lot of, like, I mean, it didn't push itself anywhere. It looked pretty good overall. Uh, it looked like a quality product. Um, story was almost nothing, though. It was literally just people on a fishing boat with a scientist, and they come across a giant glowing creature in the ocean that has glowing tentacles and it infects you with parasites that make your eyes explode. And it was trying to kind of be like a, not so much a remake of the thing, of the, of the thing, but inspired by the thing. They even have a quote unquote test scene in the movie. Um, Ooh, do you have the parasites in within you? Let's check that kind of thing. And it just, kind of meanders all over the place and doesn't really punch with any impact at any point. Even at the end, like you don't like the creature itself is just like, it's an underwater glowing group of tentacles and the characters aren't that engaging. It's just not much of anything. Not that it was terrible at all, but not a, not exploitive enough. It did not. I like, if you're going to go like giant monster or sea creature, you might as well go for it. And it just kind of fell flat. It, the paranoia wasn't there for me. The um, the sense of grandiose was not there. It just it was just a very flat movie overall. It it just did not impress me that much. Again, fairly well made, just not very engaging overall. Is it a recent film? Yeah, it came out like this year. Oh wow! 
Yeah, that I mean, it doesn't sound like something I'd watch in a thousand years, but I just have an aversion to, to see movies. I mean, I'll watch something if it's like a giant crocodile eating someone. Well, not even giant. I don't like giant animals. I like normal animals that kill people. You know, like the Blackwater movie, that was all right. Um, the Reef, I like something like that. But I, I tend to have an aversion to, to deep-sea giant creatures sort of things. Well, I mean, it didn't... When I say exploitive, it, it doesn't have to have, like, asylum-like thrills. It doesn't have to have, like, crazy CGI attack scenes or anything. But just more... Like, there was a movie that came out, like, maybe five, six years ago called Harbinger Down. Um, which was by the guys who did the um, practical effects. It was ADI Studio who did the practical effects for the Thing remake, and they like crowdfunded this thing. It's got Lance Hendrickson in it. It takes place on a boat, and it's about like a creature that starts inhabiting people and stuff, and blah 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 blah. And I found that one a lot more interesting, definitely more exploitive. Uh, probably the acting's not as good in it or anything like that, but just more is going on in it, and it has special effects. It has things happening. And in this one, there's a couple of scenes with people getting sick and one guy's eyes explode. But they just never crank up the tension. They never crank up any thrills or anything. It's just it's just pretty tepid as a movie overall. Exploding eyes do sound kind of fun, though. One scene of exploding eyes. Yeah, I watched something in the complete different direction. I watched David Yarovesky's Brightburn, written by the Gun Brothers, Brian and Mark Gunn, which to simply say is what if superman wasn't nice that's what this movie's about and that's what they did with it and that kind of i guess is the i like it okay don't get me wrong here i'm not going on a gripe but really it's just what if superman was a bad guy and yes that's an enticing thought but after you see brightburn it's pretty much what you would have expected if you spent 10 minutes thinking about what would happen if superman was a fucking bad guy and it, that's fine. Like it, it's a it's a nice production. It's pretty interesting to watch. I really a lot more graphic than I thought it would be. It had some really it's CGI, but still really nice gore. It just didn't go anywhere. It, it wasn't it wasn't like it wasn't explicit enough or didn't have enough exploitation in it. It just didn't really have any substance outside. That was of... my problem with it as well. It was I enjoyed the movie overall, but that like was cool. the last like twenty minutes of it or the last ten minutes of it really. Couldn't have that been like forty-five minutes of the movie? Like that's where they, I like when the credits start rolling is when it gets kind of interesting, and the the lead up to it is not particularly that interesting. We get the idea of this kid is probably going to be an asshole Superman. Let him do some asshole stuff. Okay, no, no, that's pretty much what we got. I mean, you've got a lot of horror aspect that he's almost a, a Michael Myerish figure as a child, and you know, but he can fly, and I don't, not so much teleport, but he's pretty fast. And he, he hunts people, he's very, very maniacal, he's pretty evil, and then the end of the movie is pretty much what you would have expected, that it's him destroying buildings and him becoming a horrible, horrible entity that will one day completely destroy the world. I think that's what we all wanted to see, and it's not like movies aren't made specifically to have sequels now and have massive lengthy universes, but I don't know if that's something that's completely necessary, a Brightburn series, but I liked it, it's it's worth checking out. When I When it first came out, I was almost ready to pull the trigger and rent it so I could have the at-home viewing experience for $20, and I will say I'm kind of glad I waited until it was just available to watch on Amazon. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is about the relationship with the parents and how the parents react to this basically adopted child they bring in who turns out to be uh, a fucking psychopath in one way, shape, or form or another. Um, 
but I don't think they explored that aspect of the story to make it that interesting. It's an interesting premise, but you got they got overly obsessed with like the mother's emotional state of having to possibly realize that her son is, is basically a bad egg. And it's just like, yeah, but you could have gone into some more dramatic scenes or something along those lines, but it just it didn't feel like it went the places it really needed to go. Well, also, you have the mother character and her it, it just being almost overwritten, but the father just goes from, that's my boy, to we gotta fucking kill this kid in, like, two scenes. It There's just no mi- middle ground whatsoever. It goes from one harsh reality to the next harsh reality, which was fine. There was some good play out with that, but still. I, I don't know. Uh, we maybe just expect a little bit too much, but it really, if you ever thought about what Superman would be like if he was a bad guy, you don't even need to watch Brightburn. And you figured it out. He kills some people, and he can fly, and he has laser eyes. So that's a that's it. That's Brightburn. It wasn't bad though. It's like literally the first fifteen to twenty minutes of uh, Superman the movie from nineteen seventy eight dragged out to an hour and a half, and he's a dick. Yeah, that's the entire movie. I mean, that's a twelve year old who's a dick. A really I, big I would dick. prefer to like it go some other places though. Towards like I thought the ending is where it started getting really good. Like okay, sure this is gonna okay you're cutting away its credits. Uh, another problem Fine. I guess too is the fact that the the character is such a dick that you have no likability, so it gets a little stressful toward the end of the movie before this is the last the end credit scene what you're talking about was really great but when it gets to that last scene with his mom and they're in the farmhouse I'm trying not to spoil it too much there's just no redeemability you get tired and stressed out watching him because it's like he's just a dick he's I know what he's gonna do next because he's a dick and they've proven to me time and time again he's a dick so there's no like shock value you're not really surprised when the ending happens it's just kind of like well I'm gonna go pee you know it's you've just been waiting to go do something else not that you you know i had to specifically pee but that was weird i'm gonna cut that actually i've come up with a new theory about brightburn um i think it was Zack snyder's um original cut of man of steel before they said you can't do this to a superman film because Zack snyder is an insufferable prick he does not know anything about superhero movies and man of steel sucks i hate that movie Speaking of movies that were hyped, like Sea Fever, another film making the uh, the rounds on social media sites, the horror community, is a movie called Relic, a movie that has had nothing but positive reviews, that has been uh, lauded as one of the, the best movies of the year, uh, lauded as one of the scariest movies of the year, which I'll go ahead and say right now, I don't particularly agree with. But the rest of the hype is mostly true. I really liked Relic. Yeah, I guess it was all right. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't, I don't know, fawn over it. Dissenting opinion. (laughs) We have different opinions on this one. This will be an interesting episode because I I do truly understand, especially going and sitting today and reading a lot of different reviews. I read one specifically from the LA Times, and I only mention this because I suggest people go look it up because I thought it was a really interesting article that helps explain a lot of um allegories in the movie but i don't know that maybe just leads us into my problem it's just a lot of allegories for things and it's not like it's a time waste because it is a a very artfully and well done film i mean it it it's it's not a bad movie i don't want to say it's a bad movie but 
I don't know. I think you're I think... having problems with the um, It Comes at Night. Is that the name of that movie or It Comes by Night? I cannot remember. It came out a few years ago. Um, also, The Witch. No, I mean, like, The Witch, I, I, that's something we all know I love. But It Comes at Night, really, that got to me because that movie wasn't about anything at all. I mean, well, it, it was, was about but it fucking just... interpersonal problems when, like, something like a pandemic is going on or sickness and how people don't trust each other. But the problem with that film, the problem with The Witch, which I really enjoyed The Witch. I actually enjoyed It Comes at Night uh, or By Night, whatever the fuck the name of it was. The problem is all the critics who go, it's the scariest movie of the year. Don't say that because you're building up to something that is not going to be. Like, The Witch is not a scary movie. It's dark. They did this to Hereditary also. And, you you know, you go into it and you have so many expectations and it's like, all right, where's the pea soup? Where's fucking yourself with the crucifix? You said this is going to be the most horrifying thing since The Exorcist. And, well, you lied. And and that does truly put a damper on, on the situation. But if you can't value whatever you've seen outside of it, that is on, I think, you. And I, I, like, I really enjoyed what I saw. I think it was... I don't think there's any... Major faults, even. I don't think that there's, like, uh, I'm going to point out these flaws and this problem and this problem. You know, it's it's not a festivist sort of thing, but it just, it, it, sometimes you just don't get the emotion. So I think it really comes down to my feelings on it, and, I mean, we'll get into the meat of this a little bit later. But I think it's because I've had, um you know, personal experiences in the same vein as this movie, and... Quite possibly, it's like when you read a novel and then they make a movie about the novel and you just don't want to see it because it's going to ruin what was in, in your head, if that makes sense. That I have my own experience and my own horror story, I guess you could say, with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia in my life. And it just doesn't, it's a different horror story than this one. So somebody else's vision and their understanding of it, I completely understand. It just doesn't fit mine, if that, you know, translates well. Well,. <sighs> First of all, let's go ahead and address the the most horrifying movie in years and blah, 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 blah. It's only horrifying if you find Alzheimer's, like, horrifying. Like, that's the scariest thing in the world to you, which is a frightening thing to have to deal with or have to deal with in your own personal life and all that. But when you throw that in advertising, and that's what the movie is ultimately about, which is it's about dementia, it's about getting old, it's about aging— People are going to go into it thinking there's going to be some crazy demon shit going on when in actuality this is about, it's a fucking melodrama is what it is. It's not even really a horror film. It has some supernatural elements to it that are largely ignored. The supernatural elements are are there, but they don't go in depth on what those supernatural elements are, if they are in fact things that are actually happening or they're in people's heads, or it's more of just one giant allegory for losing a family member to age and dementia, which is depressing. And that's what I liked about the film is I found it to be incredibly dark, incredibly depressing, but incredibly somewhat uplifting towards the end at the same time. And then right back down to being depressing again with the, the, the last coda of the movie. Uh, the general idea here is there's a woman, an elderly woman living by herself in Australia. Her husband has died a few years back. And she has gone kind of missing because she's starting the early stages of dementia. So her daughter and her granddaughter come to look in on her. And that's when the fun begins. There's no fun to be had in this movie. There's literally no fun. It's all just sad. Um, and it's really about coping with your own mortality, 
the mortality of the people you love, um, and actually having to deal with those thoughts and emotions. Because through the first, I don't know, third of the film, mostly, there's a whole lot of denial going on of what's happening. Because the daughter of the elderly woman, she's in complete denial that her mother is slowly slipping away into, into this dementia. And mostly because she can't deal with, A, losing her own family, her, her own mother, and B, because this is something that's going to happen to her, and C, it's going to happen to her child as well. It's just the complete like blocking out of the human experience of mortality. Everybody has to deal with this in themselves, and a good portion of the population is in complete denial about it. And that's really what we're working with for the most part in this film is slowly come to the realization that you're losing a loved one and you're going to eventually lose yourself. But a lot of the things that happen in the movie are just these somewhat allegory metaphors for losing someone to death and dementia. And I think a lot of those can be incredibly powerful in the film. Um, and it's a quiet film because of those things. It's not loud. It's not verbose. It's just has little touches here, here and here that really kind of resonate with you and take you through this, the story in general, because what's going on in the house is it, at the beginning of the film, it starts. And when they say it's photograph photographed beautifully, Hank didn't seem to see this. Go ahead, Hank. Cause I know you probably want to say something about it. I'll bring up my points. It was all right. I mean, everyone keeps pointing it out. Like it's some like amazing thing. Like, it's just the most beautiful photography. It's stunning. The movie will make you lose your breath. It was all right. It looked okay. I mean, it there was. I didn't think there was anything specifically to write home about. There was some okay drone shots, and uh, there's some neat effects. But uh, just quickly on the the actual message, I think behind Relic, I think something too, not just with age and death and and acceptance and the fact that everybody dies. You too have the fact that. Just because you know somebody, it doesn't mean that's who they are anymore. And all the characters in the movie seem to really struggle with the fact that their images or ideas of who they all once were isn't what they have in their head. You know, the mother is having a lot of issues with her daughter and what her daughter is choosing to do with her life and how her, her life is. The daughter calls her mother by her first name. They have a bit of anxiety between each other. And it, it really, focusing on what this movie is at its core and what happens at the end of the movie especially when you're dealing with a disease like Alzheimer's, the person you knew, it's not even like they changed. And I think that is the issue between the mother and daughter is that people grow, people change, and that it's very hard to get over the image of who somebody once was or who they are now, and you, vice versa, m might not accept it. And that's not always the best thing or the healthiest thing, but when it comes to this disease, Alzheimer's, you can't help it. But that person is dead. You know, you can't go back, you can't keep reminding them, but remember, but remember, but remember, it doesn't do anything because they fucking don't. That is gone. They're completely gone. Well, it's gone. the denial of the situation. Yeah. I think that's what the movie is trying to present is that denial that these people are in. But addressing the photography, yeah, like it starts out, and it's not so much of just like beautiful shots. It does have some beautiful shots. A lot of, um, a lot of, I wouldn't say dolly shots because who uses dollies anymore? It's probably all mostly steady cam, but it's all very fluid photography. And the film starts off with very warm colors, but it slowly starts to degenerate into cool and dark um, blues throughout the film. As and from the warm joins. yellows as it starts with. And also, if you notice at the beginning of the film, the house looks fairly normal, but as you slowly go through this and the, the elderly woman gets worse and worse, there's a rot that creeps into the house, this slow rot that you see just kind of popping up on everything. And it's never really 
particularly like attention drawn to it in a lot of scenes. Eventually they start, you know, like pointing it out and things, but mostly it's just in the background. Just you'll see like water damage in places and this house slowly becoming less of something that we find familiar and something that is becoming a terrifying place. Like someone who has dementia would view their own home. It's once this thing that they've held pride in that they know better than anything. This is the place that they lived and slowly it becomes a place you don't even recognize. Well, Edna even says that to Sam at one point, that after her husband died, the house seems foreign and strange and bigger and, and just very bizarre. And we to get her. to, it presents that to us, and we get to experience that as the film goes on. Yeah, but that also, too, kind of brings in the ooky spooky ghost angle, which it, it's, it's an allegory, but I guess if you choose to look at it this way, you really can. You find out in the movie that the, the, the daughter, um, Emily Mortimer's character, Kay, that her great-grandfather died on the property many, many years ago, and it was because he just wasn't taken care of. He probably himself had Alzheimer's, but uh, his, his body pretty much rotted and liquefied before somebody found him. And you've got this kind of hint because uh, the, the window of his front house was eventually put and used as the front door of Edna's home, and it's kind of like his malice has infected the house or his malice is infecting her kind of like uh, like the, the biblical pestilence, you know, uh, the, the black horse pestilence and or pestilence rides the black horse. It isn't a black horse, but whatever. And it's just this, it, that's the ooky spooky thing. So, I mean, you're looking at it at this angle and you're trying to follow it. And I think for the first half of the movie, you're kind of like, all right, yeah, so she's infected by a demon and, and, and it kind of, it's not even so much subtle. I mean, you really can choose to look at it this way that it was, having grace for this evil entity, but I think that's really a, 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 a weird wrong perspective. And I, I like the idea, personally, that, you know, all the woe, all the, the malice, all being upset about being alone and dying confused did seep into the house, but it it's not like it's an infection. But I guess pestilence wouldn't be the best Well, way. it is somewhat of an infection because, like, what the comparison they're trying to draw with the, the great-grandfather and what have you is this hereditary disease like Alzheimer's, which can be hereditary, um, that it's creeping in like it crept, crept in on him and it's creeping in on her. It is something that can be passed down, almost like an evil entity that has infected the family for years and it slowly keeps infecting the family. And Emily Mortimer, and knowing full well at the end of the film that it's going to creep up on her as well, that the the rot that's presented, and it does, because on Edna throughout the film, it the rot starts creeping out. She always bruises on her body and they get worse and worse and her skin kind of starts to tear. Um, it's, it's just the internal rot. Well, I mean, she external. goes ham on herself with a pair of scissors too, that she's completely destroying herself. And I think a lot of that too is, is not so much negligence on the daughter's part, but she obviously is upset about it toward the beginning of the movie. When they're filing a missing persons report, she says to the police officer, it's just been a while since I've seen her. And the cop says like, could you, clarify a little bit she's missing and you know she's like pre-alzheimer's you think she's going into dementia okay whatever they're it's not that they're not close but the relationship shown between mother and daughter it seems like and especially comments that the mother makes to her daughter sam is that they always had problems you know um she's playing piano at one point and sam uh, is a smart ass and talks about how she can play the song better and grandma taught her and the mother retorts with, well, yeah, she had a problem with me and said my fingers curled and just gave up on me. The mother throws away all of her daughter's uh, like school reports. I mean, this woman's in her 40s or so, so she's clearly kept something all these years that were important, but she's mad at her and throws them all away. And I think it's bits of their actual personality 
clashing and she's trying to uh, the daughter Emily Mortimer is uh, trying not to lose it because that's the thing the biggest thing here is it's not a villain it's not an evil demon that you have to call an exorcist over you you can't hate this person but you can hate how they're acting and you can hate what they're becoming and you can hate the disease and she's trying to come to terms with the fact that she might not have been the best daughter, possibly. I mean, this is just me reading into it. Coming to terms with the fact that what she knew is her mother's dead, the, her, her family history, her lineage is this kind of cursed, awful disease that she knows is possibly going to come on her. A lot of it, I think, is just mixed emotions between trying to read what, who these people used to be. And again, I think that might be a big point with this movie, is you're trying to really figure out who this family was before this happened. And that, too, is like, look at the movie Poltergeist. You get in the first, like, what, 15 minutes or so to see that they're a happy family and that they're working on things, and then it goes batshit insane, and you get to see this, like, yin and yang of how the family has to deal with things. But with Relic, you're kind of just left trying to piece together, well, they were they ever happy beforehand, or is this Black Death always been leering its ugly face? Well, I think they were happy beforehand, but I think what they were trying to illustrate more is when, say, when she goes to the police and like, well, why are you not around your mother? And I think a lot of it is pushing the problem away and not so much the problem of an abusive family per se, but as much more of pushing age away, not wanting to watch your family member get old and die not wanting to have to go through watching them slip away from you. So you just kind of move to a different city and you call them on the phone and that way you can still feel like you're having interaction with them and all this stuff, but you don't have to see them. You don't have to see your own mortality staring you back in your face because you remember what she looked like 40, 50 years ago. Um, and now you see what she looks like now. It's like seeing anyone's grandparents slip away from you and knowing full well that you're going to die. Even having a newborn child and watching that child grow up, realizing that that child's going to get older and all this, this love that you have, all this, like this cutesy shit that you're going through that it's going to slip away as well. And it's, it's hard things to deal with. And I think that's represented through each member of, of these three women, each member of the family of different stages of, um, God, I don't know how you'd phrase it, different stages of development in a human being's life and those stages, how they interact with the older versions well, different of, realities of too. yourself, basically. Yeah. I mean, you could say different realities also, that they all truly are in different realms and realities. And that's going to be your reality at some point. Yeah, and the thing, too, about it is is you can't get anyone else on your level, if that makes sense. When you when you have a different reality, whether it's going up or down or you're regressing or, or, or going forward, you can't ever bring someone else there. No matter how similar their concepts may be, there's always going to be a, a difference. There is no perfect mirror image, and no matter how much you want that to happen, you know it, it just destroys everything. And you can really see that with uh, Emily Mortimer and her daughter Sam's. It's a... a Bella Heathcote from Neon Demon. I think she's the model that could not keep her food down. And you you can see that they're, they care for each other, obviously, but they're really at each other's throats for the first half of the movie. But in the end, she comes to her mother. She comes to her mother and her grandmother because it's the overall acceptance of the situation. And I think that really is the finale. Is She, that last scene in, in my mind, is her realizing her fate, her mother's fate, and the fact that it's universal. I mean, it's really not a negative aspect to realize and talk about it, but everyone does die. Everything will return to the earth, and whatever your concept of 
death is. It doesn't have to be a frightening, horrible, ugly aspect, but it's always talked about that way, and Alzheimer's is too, which it, it, it kind of is a, a leering, awful, you know, demon. It really is just the, the, the worst thing from death. hell. Yeah. It's being dead yet still like walking around and like not like your your whole personality is gone. That person that you were is completely gone, but your body still exists. You are the walking dead. And in some cases, people just become completely different. You know, it, it's not even so much like they lost a creature, perhaps. Yeah. You know, you just get uh, the most visceral nature, the most uh, human nature, I guess, which at its core is survival. And so it isn't always pleasant to see somebody at no at whatever means necessary survive we keep coming back to this but a few weeks ago we talked about a, a Hal Holbrook movie and the whole core of that movie is him surviving pretty much to the point that he fucking goes crazy and loses himself and it doesn't matter what happens to him because he survived that incident that's again where you're at rituals we're we're coming back to rituals over and over again the rituals and relic with the double r's the similarity is the fact of yes you have survived but at what cost and the devastating realization that you two will eventually die. But again, I think it's dealt with always in such a negative concept, and I don't think Relic handled it that way. I, I think it was horrifying. I think it was yes. a positive concept at the end. Yes, definitely. I mean, it was, I think, horrifying in the, the way it was handled and the manner it was given to you, which was really sweet. It was really, really cool. It was great effect. I, I really enjoyed it. But I, I don't know. I... I don't want to say it was uplifting and there should have been like the sound of music cues playing, you know, everything's okay, but that's kind of how I took it because I don't know how to say it without it sounding just completely bizarre, but everything is okay. It will be okay. You're going to die and it will be okay though. I mean, because it, it happens to everyone. So just do what you got to do while you're doing it and try and focus on the fact that your former self or someone's former self or someone's future is never going to be on your level and is never going to be you that you've got to, Take care of that, you know. Take care of yourself. Well, the the ultimate ending of the film ends up being somewhat beautiful because what ends up happening, and full spoilers here, is fucking grandma goes crazy. They all get fucking freaked out and try to run from her, but they don't leave the house. They like club her. She's down for the count. She's sitting, laying on the floor, dying, and only Mortimer refuses to leave the house. And you start to notice that her, like her, her mother, the grandmother, her skin is falling off. And this very protracted scene, she just continues to peel the skin off. And what is underneath this withered skin, but this husk of what this person once was, this kind of amazing animatronic puppet. Um, it was really this, cool. Almost a corpse. Uh, it's what's left of us when we die. What is happening to uh, all your family members in the ground right now? This incredibly emaciated, black, um, almost saturated with mold, um, but at the same time, somewhat beautiful creature that's underneath this this beautiful death that she finally embraces and helps pass away as she like they lay there and spoon basically in a bed, and then the. Uh, the granddaughter comes in and spoons her mother, and it's this uh, this triptych of different generations finally accepting the death of the the uh, the matriarch and the family, and all realizing that this is their fate as well, and all fully embracing life, death, and the whole fucking shebang, and realizing this is where they're all headed, and we are all headed, and that's really like. If the ending doesn't didn't play out the way it did, I wouldn't have liked this movie as much as I did. Um, 
Because when it gets to the uh, killer granny stuff and becomes like almost like a slasher film, it's like, eh, whatever. This is kind of ridiculous. What is interesting, what's going on during there is because at a certain point, the granddaughter finds this almost secret passageway in the closet and she starts going through it and gets lost in this in the walls of the house. But the what's in these walls of the house is just all these different memories that her grandmother had. It's basically she's taking a trip in her grandmother's brain of what it would be like. Well, it's really devastating stuff. I mean, she you see throughout the movie that Edna has been putting post-it notes to remind herself things, and some of them are very ob- uh, uh, some of them are very ominous. Like one that's found inside of her jacket pocket is "Don't follow him," and then a strange noise, or "Don't follow it." I don't think it specifies a gender. "Don't follow it," and then there's a big loud thump from inside the walls, which I guess that's where she was. That's where Edna was when she goes missing, that she's lost inside the walls. She was lost inside she's of lost her, in own. her own head. Yeah. She's lost in her own mind because that's all it truly is, is the allegory for being lost inside yourself. But when Bella Heathcote is, or Sam is going through, it's she finds these post-it notes. And one of them says something like your mother's eyes were green. Uh, your name is Edna. And it's these really devastating things that you wouldn't, I don't think at first consider horrifying, but just try and focus and think about, what if you couldn't remember the color of your mother's eyes? Or what if you couldn't remember your own name? I mean, that should be just as ominous as don't follow it. And we're never, you know, uh, the whole it, I think, too, really just goes back to the whole idea of pestilence and the great-grandfather and the relic being installed in the house, that it's just the woe and suffering does carry over. I mean, I guess we can get a little hippie-ish here, but energy's energy, whether it's positive or negative. But if something really fucking bad happens, maybe it could linger. Maybe it could be more of an infection than just the Alzheimer's. It's just, I mean, there's a point where she says outside to her daughter, I always hated that. I always hated looking at it. And the daughter hates it because they all have remorse. They all have, even though it might not have been them that neglected this person, they have genuine remorse for what happened, but it's because none of them are willing to face the actual situation. You know, Emily Mortimer's got this remorse and this great feeling of hatred for where her great-grandfather died and the situation that's going on with her mother because she just refuses to deal with what's happening. And, you know, that's where the whole ending wraps things up and makes it a pretty nice bow. I mean, I think it was a really delicate presentation as, well, horrifying. And that's really, I guess, where you can see a lot of the more kiss-ass fucking horror reviewers out there saying, it's scarier than the fucking exorcist. It's so scary. Ah, well, I hate I hate you people. It's really not <laughs> I hate it. scary at all. It's it. just sad. Like, I wasn't frightened at all. Like, when um, she's trapped in the walls, I'm, like, picking up on what they're doing here, and I'm just, like, I'm taking all the, this wave of emotion in of, like, holy shit, this is what it would be like if you have Alzheimer's and you're walking through a house that was once yours and now you're basically trapped. Everything should make sense. You should know exactly where you are. You you don't. And all the things that once had meaning to you, all the little trinkets, all the things that you've carried through your life are now just piled up everywhere. This hoarder house of just stuff that you don't even know what the fuck it is at this point. And then as you travel through these walls, it starts to close in on you further and further until you get to this very claustrophobic uh, scene where like the house keeps shrinking around her and shrinking around her as you just start to go into this this panic of your life closing in on you all together all at once. And that's like to me, the film itself the allegory is all I took from it. I never looked at it as anything other than this allegory, all the horror elements, all the things that you could 
be construed as real life things or horror things. And it was just like, I don't give a shit about that. I care about what you're overall trying to say. Like one of the uh, scenes that affected me the most was when um, Edna was going out and she's carrying around the family album and her uh, Emily Mortimer is like watching from afar and you don't know what she's doing. And it turns out she's taking pictures out of the family album and shoving them in her mouth and eating them because she doesn't want to lose these memories. So what's the best way of doing that is just maybe consuming the memories will like will keep them inside of me. And that's just like which is very is childlike, devastating. I mean, and it, it's very weird that this makes me think of this. But I, I read this story once. You know, um, where the wild things are, Maurice Sendak. Yep. He got a letter from a woman that her child really, really loved the story, blah, 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 blah. So he drew him a little monster sketch and sent it to the kid, and the woman writes him back and goes, well, my, my son was so devastated. He loved it so much, he didn't want to part with it, so he ate it. And it, that's in that aspect, when you're looking at it as a child and a child's behavior, you're like, oh, my God, that's so heartwarming. He never wanted to lose it. But then you put it in as your 80-year-old mother, and okay, in that logic, it is scarier than the fucking Exorcist. But you can't start a review that way and make it no. seem that there's going to be the, the most horror. Because even to this day, I'll give The Exorcist some credit here. It's a pretty fucking scary movie still. It's got, I mean, I, I don't know. Most people like the version you've never seen before. But the theatrical release of The Exorcist is a scary movie. And I think it's really, really effective 40, 50 years later, it doesn't matter how old the movie gets, it still really works. You can't just fucking all lottie dotty say it's scarier than The Exorcist because that's really, you know, that's like, I don't know, saying that Reese's peanut butter cups suck. It's That's just a lie. You're a liar. You don't know what you're talking about. It's a fucking lie. <laughs> what an allegory on your end. What about a four, Hank? I couldn't think of anything. But I get what you mean, though, and that's a lot to do with just I wouldn't say horror journalism. It's more of advertising and marketing as a whole is when you have a new horror film, they're always trying to market it as the next scary thing. And they end up fucking shit over because people are expecting something that's terrifying. And what they really need to like really kind of market it as is disturbing. It's disturbing. It's dramatically disturbing. Like something like hereditary. Hereditary is fucking disturbing. Once you get to that midpoint when the the thing happens that happens that everybody like doesn't really see coming, that's what really is disturbing about it. It's not just like, well, well another thing is a lot of people at this point in history interpret scary as what? Fucking jump scares. Jump scares. This movie did like actually it does have a couple of jump scares in it I would say but they're somewhat effective jump scares they're not cat scares or any of that garbage they're just like knowing how to photograph something and making it look fucking creepy. Well, it's also knowing who the audience is. You had to have something. I mean, you you can't expect everyone to get this. I and I don't mean to say that insultingly, but it's like again just going into the same subject matter that we're in. When The Witch came out, it was billed as one of the scariest movies of all time. And I remember seeing on Facebook just people I know really fucking mad about it. Just really like, fucking went and saw this stupid-ass fucking movie. I don't even know what the fuck they were talking about. It's all fucking old English, fucking dumb goat. And I didn't see The Witch until long after it came out uh, on home release. And when I saw it, I completely and immediately understood why so many people had a problem with the movie. I loved it. I love it to this day. And I'll say it a thousand times again. I'm a lighthouse guy. That's, to me, one of the greatest fucking movies out there that you could see. So I'm really into allegories and things particularly not being uh, completed at the end of it. But 
Relic is, I think, really unlike a lot of the things that we mentioned. I think a lot of its peers, I guess you could say, like Hereditary and The Witch, I think this movie is, is a little bit more complete, to be honest with you. I think it had a little well, bit a, more to offer. It's a full package. It doesn't leave you hanging at the end like a lot of the other ones do. I mean, this is, it's a thesis statement at the beginning, and then here's your fucking conclusion, and the rest of it's like figuring this shit out, and it's one complete whole idea from start to finish. It doesn't like linger around to make you think about other stupid shit or like be very like vague about things. No, it's this, this, and this over. Perfect. Done. Well, it's funny. There's another film in this kind of um, dementia as a disease, demon, whatever you want to call it genre called The Taking of Deborah Logan, which I, I ran as a double feature. I watched Relic last night, The Taking of Deborah Logan right after it. And it's really funny taking the subject matter and seeing if you just even add a teensy bit of exploitation to the nature of it, how much it drastically changes things. And I'm not going to argue or like debate which one is better than the other. I think Relic probably is gonna is one of the best movies of the year looking at how this year is and it's i don't mean to say that with like hesitation or like it's one of the best movies of the year it's intriguing how it was done i think it is a really effective movie i don't it's not like i'm gonna lowball it and give it shitty points just because i didn't get a certain effect and feeling out of it but like when you were talking about how there's a lot of not a lot but there's several jump scares you look at something like the taking of deborah logan and how it it's full of fucking jump scares. Yeah, it doesn't grease the wheels in the same way whatsoever. And by the time you get to the end of Relic and you have this understanding and you're kind of left in a little bit of dismal awe of what you just saw, when you get to the end of Taking a Deborah Logan, everyone has the same exact sentiment. That one scene was kind of cool. That, that one little bit, that was kind of cool. It has a really good scene in it, and a lot of that is due to just how it's shot, the fact that you're using a flashlight to come upon the horror that's being presented to you. That's a very effective scene, and I will always give that movie credit for that scene alone. The difference is Relic ends up being fucking kind of beautiful at the end. It ends up being highly dramatic and just sad, and that's really how they should be marketing uh, Relic. Is It's one of the saddest movies of the year, not the most frightening. It's, and, but it's unpleasant. Overall, I just I, I think really what makes it one of the, the best movies of the year, besides the fact that this year has been fucking wacky on releases, everything is what I was just stating before is just it is a complete thought. It is a complete thought from start to finish. And when you can do that with a film, that really does prove something. It doesn't have a lot of loose ends. It doesn't have a bunch of vagaries. It doesn't have a bunch of like, well, we didn't know like it, the script is tight. The film itself is tight. Everything works together the way it's supposed to. It's a perfect symphony of what is going on. The taking of Deborah Logan, which is different or similar subject matter, is patchwork at best. It's incredibly messy. It had a wonderful idea to start with, and then it kind of flounders that idea at times. It kind of goes off in weird directions. Well, what's unfortunate it, is the ideas, all, all of the ideas in that movie are successful and would have worked if they had been tempered a little bit more. If maybe, I mean, and I'm not saying you have to rewrite yes. it a thousand times, but it definitely needed a little bit more angling and things needed to, to weave together a lot more completely than they did because it just goes from one thing to the next and then to the next and then it ends and you're kind of, you're just really left like, well, you, you gave me facts on all the wrong things. You just want to know more at this point and you shouldn't be left asking any questions. You should be able to have a, a just a polite ending, a thoughtful ending, not necessarily polite. And what I mean by that is it's polite to actually fucking give an ending to your movie that makes sense. 
So it, uh, that's type of polite, but thoughtful. That that we've been talking about this on a, a handful of episodes now. But just fucking putting thought into what you're doing, it, just putting thought into the organization and what you want people to see. And that's, I mean, the very last shot of Relic is what you need to focus on. It is the relic itself, and it's kind of infected with the mold, with the degradation of all of them. It's it's all of their woe. Everyone's misery is now part of this uh, black mold pestilence that has infected the house. Yeah, and taking of Deborah Logan, you get a weird snake lady that's real creepy looking for about two seconds, and it's awesome. But that's what you're left away with is like that one scene. It's not a complete fucking product overall, and Relic is just perfect for what it is. It's kind of like this is a weird comparison to make, but like the be- like one of the best movies of last year was Parasite, and not to like it's not even comparable in ideas particularly as much as it is. Parasite is about one thing: everything that's in that script goes to bolster this idea of basically class uh class consciousness and that's what the entire movie is about and when it gets to the end you get a satisfactory ending of this thesis they've created and it's the same thing with relic it's just one nice complete package of what you were trying to say with this film and a lot of people we've me and hank have had conversations off the air plenty of times about people who say why do you gotta read so much into movies Something just happens, and then uh, you watch it, and it's just entertainment. It's not just entertainment. It's a, <laughs> it's about echoes. It's about different ideas that are being presented. It's not just about, like, if you look at Relic and think it's, why is Lady Possessed? Why do you even give a shit? That is so far away from the story we were trying to tell with Relic. This is so much about one concept and how you internalize that concept. And that is what film can be. It's not just the plot. Lots of movies have lots of plot. Plot is not particularly interesting. Story is what's interesting. I suppose in this era we live in, you can certainly say that film in general can be a source of entertainment. Not to constantly dig at Marvel movies, but that, for all intents and purposes, are what they are. They're popcorn movies. But at its core, and I'll argue and die on this motherfucking hill, film is art. And art is infinite. Art is love. Art is wisdom. Art is everything and anything. Art is infinity. Art is what the human condition is. It's trying to figure out the human condition. That is the whole fucking purpose well, of it. It's not meant just to entertain you. It's a meant a, a form of communication and trying to communicate your feelings, your ideas to other people. It's not just a story for you to ingest, digest, and shit out. It's a meant to stay with you and some form or shape it's something stronger than just sitting down and being able to be entertained it doesn't always have to be something incredibly deep and thought-provoking but you have to always recognize the aspect that a lot of people that go into doing this and go into this career-wise they don't consider themselves directors or movie makers or stars they consider themselves artists they can you you can go and stand and you go to museums and you look at paintings and you're wowed by it but you watch The Lighthouse, and it's like, I don't get the beans, man. Pfft, fuck this movie. It's fine that you don't get it.
supposed to get everything and you don't have to read into it as much as we do why we do a fucking show and why we are critics is because we like to read into it and it's something that we really get a lot of passion out of but if it's something that you objectively don't get i i just am baffled by how people handle it and just going back to the story about the witch fuck this movie it was just fucking stupid i don't get it I don't, doesn't that make you look like a dumbass to just go and rant about how you didn't get something? I mean, you're kind of pointing the finger at yourself of like, I don't, I don't get it. It's just stupid. Why didn't it entertain me? I don't know. I think you're missing the point. I think you're missing the entire point of art in, in general. I mean, and that's fine because some people just die stupid and don't get it. Wait a minute. How is Day of the Dead political? Ah. <laughs> I don't know. How is it political? I don't know how it could this movie that is about nothing but literally nothing but politics. How could it be political? I fucking hate when you guys make zombie movies political. We got a question like that when we did the uh, the Q and A episode a few months ago for our eleventh anniversary. Why you guys got to make everything so political? It's not inherent. I mean, we didn't make this fucking political uh, until now. But when we do things like a conversation on the political nature of Day of the Dead, and that's the name of the show, what the fuck did you think you were going to get into? What, <laughs> it was in the title of the goddamn show, man. And it's not my fault. I mean, like, we did talk radio, and that got a little... I mean, that's that's like a year-old show at this point. But when we did talk radio, it got oddly political, and somebody commented on me, like, that movie doesn't really have much to do with politics. Oh, a, a Jewish DJ being shot by a Nazi organization has nothing to do with... All right, I'm sorry that when there is an opportunity to play ball, we play ball, and we have opinions. I mean, that's why we have the fucking show, and I, I, I assume that's why people listen, because they want to hear it. But I, I don't know. I mean, it's not that everything's political. That's not the basis of every single piece of art. But at the same time, art is fucking inherently political. You see people raging against musicians that have issues with Donald Trump. You see people telling Neil Young, get out of America if you don't like it. For one, he's fucking Canadian, so uh, shut up. And two, have you ever listened to the man's music? I wish that Bob Dylan guy wouldn't be so political. Oh, fuck off. Just what? Fuck off, okay? You, you're just completely, almost like you had dementia, ignoring the past. You're choosing completely to look at the the wrong fucking thing so it benefits you. Again, which is uh, similar to what most of the characters do in Relic. None of them want to come face to face with death. Nobody does, but oh, death is going to happen to all of us. Neil Young has always been political, and the best snake man in a movie is Dreamscape. It's definitely David Patrick Kelly and Dreamscape. <laughs> that took a wild fucking turn. Uh, and the best snake man's Dreamscape. Bite me. I just have some thoughts, and every now and again, I, I want people to know them, and uh, David Patrick Kelly is the best snake man. But, I mean, that's one thing that people need to realize, is you have to go into film and look at it from different levels. Don't just go in. I mean, if you want to, if you just want to ignore what life is all about, and just want to be Daddy entertained. Watch if that's what you want to do. Watch Knocked Up, all right? You sit down and you watch Knocked Up and you like it. And you laugh at every Seth Rogen joke and you never complain about anything again. You just sit and watch Family Guy. And if you fucking get mad that it's too political, ugh, like, ugh, 
I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. I got no advice for you. Yeah, I mean, then you just don't need to be listening to a show like ours because it's going to be a lot about philosophy and politics because that's what art is. Sorry? You What, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about fucking Eraser? You want to talk about Terminator? Let's talk about Terminator some more. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, I feel there's so much to work with. There's so much old, new, really enticing stuff like Relic, and it's like an uphill battle. I don't know. I, you know, you you can't really please anybody, and it's just like when you read these reviews of the scariest movie of all time. Maybe it's false advertising when you want to sit down and watch a movie and you just want to be completely entertained. Really, I don't, I don't know. Watch a Marvel movie at that case. I mean, just, uh, but you can't. You can't just even sit and watch one Marvel movie. You've got to watch 16 of them to actually understand what's going on and just fucking one of them. So I don't know. Watch the Lego movie. I think Trolls World Tour is uh, widely available right now. I, you know, there's stuff out there for you. There's stuff out there for the average yeah. guy, I guess. I guess, like, a, a, a non-political movie we could suggest is Ken Russell's The Devils. That's not political It's actually at all. about devils. It's great. And big horns. <laughs> God. I, I, and that's something, too. I mean, even just making that joke, one of the most banned movies of all time. It, you think you're going to get into something incredibly graphic. And, yeah, I mean, somebody fucks themselves with a femur bone. It's kind of cool. But it's just an allegory. Everything at its core, good art is an allegory for something else. And it's usually pain and suffering. I mean, <laughs> it's it's mostly pain and suffering. That is entirely true. It's mostly just about yep. pain. And I guess that's that's pretty much Death by DVD. It's all about pain. On the next episode of Death by DVD, Hank is upset when a Kenny Rogers chicken restaurant opens across the street from the apartment building he and I, Alexander Nash, live in. Hank thinks that it will never succeed, but when Diane Ryan Lane raves about it, Hank is soon addicted. The neon light that bathes Hank's apartment in a bright red glow is another problem. He soon is moved in with I, Alexander Nash, but the two of them start to undergo a personality transplant. Find out what happens next on the next episode of Death by DVD. Wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced.